This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Farm Tank. Today I'm going to be talking to Tom Willis. Tom is one of the first farmers featured on Farm Tank. He earned a degree in economics, business administration, and agricultural business from Utah State University. He spent most of his career in risk management and agribusiness, including companies with General Mills and J.R. Simplot. In 2004, Tom took over as CEO at Conestoga Energy, taking the company from 3 to 220 employees and $1.5 billion in sales. Tom also currently serves as a National Sorghum Producers Board of Directors and the Koch's Foundation Youth Entrepreneurs Board. He's the past chairman of the Kansas Association of Ethanol Producers and the past president of Montana Grade and Feed Association. Tom also has other business ventures as well, including a semi-trailer leasing company, a farm, and other business par- partnerships. With that, I would like to welcome Tom to the show. Hey, thanks, Jordan. It's great to be here. Great having you. So I want to start this podcast off with your sheep herding experience when you were 15. My dad's told me a lot of stuff that you've told him. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show about some stuff you wanted to talk about. Tell me about the uh, Great Pyrenees and how you brought them up with the uh, well, sheep. Well, uh, you're right. I grew up on a cattle and sheep ranch in uh, southeast Idaho, and uh, we ran around 3,000 head of ewes. We have a lot of coyote problems. Uh, we run on the National Forest and BLM. So as a, as a way to try to prevent or mitigate some of the damages, we would get uh, Great Pyrenees dogs uh, as puppies, and uh, we'd take them and uh, just put them out with the sheep when they were puppies. Uh, don't touch them. Don't hug them. Don't call them. And after a while, they, uh, they begin to feel like they're part of the herd, and they blend in right with the herd, and they become very protective. I uh, can't say that uh, we went from to no loss with it, but uh, if you have, uh, in our case, I think we have 10 or 12 of them uh, out there, they're uh, very, very protective of, uh, of the flock. So it's kind of interesting watching watching the dog assimilate uh, uh, from becoming a dog to a sheep. Tell me a little bit about the uh, leadership stuff you were talking about with the sheep. You know, um, Sheep are real interesting characters because uh, they uh, they have a tendency to follow each other, and there's a big difference between a shepherd and a sheep herder. Uh, my grandfather pointed that out to me as I grew up. He could go call his sheep, uh, especially when they were running out on the BLM out on the desert, and within a half hour he could have most of the three thousand come up to him. And they would literally follow him wherever he went. Now, we could hire sheep herders that would come on horses with dogs, and they would get behind them and they would drive them. But my grandfather, you know, 60-year-old man at the time, could do more because those sheep trusted him. They knew who he was. And uh, 
they would follow him anywhere. It was the most amazing thing I've, I ever saw growing up. And I think when you look at uh, running a company or running any kind of business, uh, when you can get uh, your team members or your employees to follow you versus having to drive them to be, product- you know, be productive in what they do, um, you're much better off. So it's a really early lesson in leadership. Uh, don't know that he was teaching me that, um, but uh, certainly in the way that he handled his, handled his sheep. So, and up until the day he died, and he died at 90, uh, he could go out, uh, and uh, they, they would, uh, when he'd call them, they, they would come. Yeah, I had a similar experience probably growing up. Instead of sheep, played football growing up, baseball, and my dad always had me playing quarterback, and I played catcher in baseball when I was younger, and when, I didn't realize it at the time, but once I got older, I realized he put me in those positions to learn how to be a leader and try to get people to follow me and paid off. It's paid off yeah. now and hopefully pays off more in the future. Much, much better to have your team members want to follow you than have to drive them. I would say There's so. A lot less, it's a lot less energy, too. A lot less energy, too. So you so. graduated from Utah State University, and then you went and worked at General Mills and J.R. Simplot for a little bit. Could you tell well, our listeners... There was no. one little step in there. I actually bought a farm in the late seventh, uh, 1979, and uh, we went. Uh, we were part of the victim of the 80, 85, 86, 87 farm crisis. So there was one little slip there between that, going to school and then going to work for General Mills. Okay. Would you uh, tell me the best thing you learned in that little stint buying that farm during that period of time? Uh, there's three, three or four things that I learned, Jordan. Uh, number one, it is not about equity in agriculture. It's about cash flow. Uh, back then, bankers would loan you money based on equity. Um, and when push came to shove and property values dropped, equity meant nothing. It was strictly cash flow. So that is the first and prominent uh, lesson that I learned from, from that experience. Um, Second thing that I think I learned from it is that, uh, which everybody knows, is that life is, you're not always going to win. And it's not losing that matters. Everybody's going to lose. It's what you do when you lose. Do you sit down on a stump and cry, uh, or do you use it to build and go on with the next stage of your life? So I would tell you that I was faced with some pretty hard decisions at that time in my life as to what I wanted to do, give up, because that was my only dream, uh, was to was to have that ranch and farm, or uh, did I regroup? So I, I learned I learned that uh, even though uh, sometimes you come out on the short end of things, uh, it doesn't mean you're a loser. It just means you lost that particular that particular battle, but you haven't lost the war uh, with it. So. I think the third thing that uh, that experience taught me was that you have to work smart and not hard. Hard work's not enough today. You have to work hard, but you've got to work smart. You've got to adopt technology. Of course, technology then versus technology today is night and day, but uh, you have to learn to work extremely smart. Um, and there were some decisions looking back on. I thought I could just, you know, if I worked hard enough, I could work my way out of it, and, and it wasn't it wasn't true. 
I, I think the other thing I, I learned out of that was a healthy respect for debt. You can have good debt and you can have bad debt. Uh, debt that generates cash flow uh, is good debt. Uh, debt that does not generate cash flow, um, you know, either it's money that you want to throw away, potentially it's all good, but uh, it's not good debt. So... Um, I think those were probably, and then I think that probably the fifth lesson I learned coming out of that was just not not giving up. That if you work hard enough uh, and smart enough, that you can still achieve your dreams, and just not to give up. So, you know, life took a lot of turns and twists from what I thought it was going to be, but I will tell you that part of what I am today was going through what was a pretty painful experience, actually. So, but I would say those were the biggest lessons I learned. I think those are, yeah, I think those are a lot of good lessons people can use in anything, not just farming, but one that I get every day, probably twice a day, working with my dad and being around him so much is, son, you got to figure out how to work smart, not hard. Tells me every single day. So, yeah, I think that's a good lesson, one that's still getting drilled in my dome every day. So let's bounce off that. So you did the farm. You went to General Mills, J.R. Simplot. I want to know some of the best tools you gained from those two jobs to put you in the position you're in today with uh, all the businesses you have, CEO of Conestoga and whatnot. Uh, I would say there was, you know, three or four just looking back on it. I think number one, the um, I think the number one was the importance of surrounding yourself with good people. Uh, we have a tendency, especially young people do as they're growing up, to measure themselves and what they accomplish rather than what the team accomplishes. And without naming names, but to just think back on some of the superstars, maybe especially in basketball, who have averaged, you know, 25, 30 points a game and they, their team has never won a championship or never played for a championship. Uh, yeah, they were, the, they were the best basketball player on the floor, but they never won a championship. So the importance of surrounding yourself with people that are smarter, smarter than you, and it, you know, was an immense lesson that I learned uh, from from General Mills. I think um, probably the second thing uh, that I learned was to listen to what those people had to say. If uh, I was in a meeting and I had five or six eyes, sets of eyes, looking at me questioning and decision, you know, I needed to stop and say, okay, what am I missing? So the ability to listen to what your people have to say. Uh, who was the uh, who was the smartest person in General Mills that you would uh, hang around and learn from? Oh, gosh, there were, there were, there were several mentors that I had, several mentors uh, in their, in their brain division that, you know, um, Ron Olson, Mayo Schmidt, uh, Fran Malika, uh, Bob Miller were would be some of the ones that uh, would would come to mind. Uh, What's the what would you say the best piece of advice you learned from one of those guys? Listen to what your people have to tell you. Listen what do you what, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, if you have if say you have a, a group that you're supervising and you've got an idea, and you've 
people on the team look at you like that's a lousy idea, stop and say, okay, why is it a lousy idea? What are they seeing that I'm not seeing? What do they see that I don't see? Because most of your really, really good ideas are going to come from your frontline people. They're the ones that live it. They're the ones that breathe it. They're the ones that do it. They're the ones, if you really want to invent a better widget, a lot of times they're the ones that are going to have the ideas for doing it. So that was probably, you know, one of the the really important lessons I learned. I think the second one was the importance of details. Um, you know, follow up, follow through. Uh, details uh, is everything in a business plan. You put the best plan together, but if you don't follow up, follow through, hold people accountable, um, you're not going to get the results that you want. So working for a company the size of both those companies, pretty good lessons. I think the, the third was the importance of culture. Both of those companies had a unique culture. I mean, they were unique from each other, uh, unique to each other. But every every company has a culture, and it's developing that uh, that culture that fits best for for the the people that are in it, and then subscribing to it, as well as having company values. So I know you're pretty diverse. You got a farm yourself, and you're in a lot of businesses. One of the businesses I wanted to talk about is this water farm you're doing now. I know the main purpose of it, obviously, is to figure out how to improve yields and grow crops with less water. But what I wanted to ask you is, where do you see this going in the future in agriculture, and what exactly made you decide to start working to improve water usage? Well, uh, those are all great questions. Number one, my farm, or at least a good part of my farm, is on the honest end of the uh, Ogallala Aquifer. And by the honest end, I mean the end that's going dry first. There's a limited amount of water in that aquifer. And once it's gone, it's going to, you know, it took a million years to replenish, uh, uh, and it didn't take us very long to deplete it. So why did I get started in it? I, uh, I bought uh, farm ground, and I wanted that ground to be around for my son or my grandson. And in western Kansas, a lot of times that means irrigation. Number two, I have two ethanol plants, one in Garden City, one in Liberal, Kansas. Uh, between the two of them, we probably buy 50, 55 million bushels of grain. Um, we lose our competitive advantage, Jordan, if I have to bring that from out of state. So being able to have a steady, reliable source of grain in western Kansas is extremely important uh, for, my, for the companies that I manage. Uh, to have that steady supply of grain, you've got to uh, you, you've got to have irrigation. We just don't get enough water out here year in and year out to be able to raise uh, corn, beans, uh, even milo, uh, without some type of supplementary um, irrigation with it. So that was the why I got involved with it was because I could see that a the aquifer was depleting at a very fast rate. Two. Um, it would have a direct impact not only on my 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 farm and my family, but also uh, my company. Uh, our goal is to say, hey, how do we produce the same amount of revenue, generate the same amount of revenue, and do it with less water? Uh, you know, we've gone to precision planting, precision fertilizing today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with that. 
what we're trying to do is uh, take that same concept, at least as much as we can. It's a little different, but to a certain extent, the same principle, and say, hey, using water probes, moisture probes, um, different cropping practices, different application practices, how do we take and get the same size crop or different crop rotation and uh, net the same amount of revenue, but at the end of the day, you know, use six or seven inches less water uh, out of the aquifer and try to extend it that way. Do you think this is where farming's going, or do you just believe just because your situation? I think it's more of where you're at. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have unlimited water, and there are places where they do, right? Yep. They're blessed with it. Probably it's not worth the investment. If you're in western Kansas, western Nebraska, uh, west Oklahoma, west Texas, uh, that's a whole different story. Because you need that, uh, you need that supplementary irrigation. So I think it's going to be on a case by case basis in terms of geographically where you're at, what your what your rainfall uh, is, what your soil type is. So I, I wouldn't say it would be widely adapted, but it's certainly I think something you're going to see in areas where they depend on supplementary um, irrigation, and that irrigation supply is getting smaller. And that is what we find ourselves in in western Kansas right now. Yeah, makes sense. So another alternative business you recently invested in, I know, is the hotel business. Could you share with our listeners just a little bit about how the hotel business is right now and what you exactly see in it and made you want to invest in it? Well, it's a hotel-slash-restaurant. One, uh, there was a need we could see a need down here in our community uh, for a good quality hotel. Uh, two, uh, I had the opportunity to invest with, with, uh, with a couple of people that knew quite a bit about the industry. And three, I'm always looking for diversification in my portfolio. I'm very heavily ag-oriented, you know, ethanol, uh, farming, cattle, uh, very, very heavily weighted towards commodities. And as you know, with commodities, there's a ton of risk. So my goal going forward is to invest in businesses that A, throw cash off. They have to, they have to pass the litmus test of cash flow. But uh, B, give me some diversification so that regardless of uh, whether there's a drought or whether we have an embargo on the you know, uh, trade tariff uh, with, with China and can't trade beans, that all of my revenue is not dependent upon uh, upon weather or government policies. So it's just part of what I think makes smart business to have some diversification in in uh, your investments. So yeah, is the that's probably the biggest reason I got into it. Is the restaurant in the hotel the Old Chicago's, or is that a different? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the Old Chicago's a little bit. I wanted to talk about that as well. Is that the well, only I'm, one you have, or are you? How many do you have? I'm now? building one out in uh, two of them out in Utah, one in Utah, and one in Idaho. Can you tell our listeners about like what the return is on that and how quickly you can get your money back? Well, I can tell you pro, the, the uh, pro forms on it. It's just, but it, it's probably any anything I like. I get into. I like to have if it's very long term. You know, ten years or less. So, so maybe share with us like how the money is made in this business with the old Chicago's. Like well, what, what's the, the margin? It's a, 
it's a volume business, and you want people to come in. Um, you want them to, it, to uh, obviously, there's a high markup on alcohol. You want them to drink, and you, you want them to eat. So everything uh, is geared towards providing a, a great experience. Uh, a lot of you know, sports carry seven or eight games at one time, uh, but uh, good food, good uh, selection of drinks, and just a great place to hang out with your friends. So, uh, but it's a, it's a it's a volume game. The more customers you get in, the the more you make. So, mm-hmm. you were talking about how you don't want to be heavily invested in ag, and you like diversification. We try to get that across to a lot of our farmers, and they just don't quite understand why they would need to do something like that. They just want to focus on farming. Tell me why you think it would be important to create more profit centers on the farm and create diversification. Well, I'll give you a great farmer. example this year. A year ago, who saw the trade war with China coming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a year ago, soybeans were, what, 1030, 1040 on the board? Yes. And today, what are they? Uh, I haven't looked in the last couple of days. Low nines, high eights? Yeah. In uh, the uh, eight region. South South and North Dakota, some of the co-ops or some of the elevators there have gone to no bid because they have no market for them. Now, how much that could the farmer control? Absolutely zero. Yep. So you can be the best farmer in the world, but if there's nobody there to buy your product or if the price is below the cost of production, it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. So while I enjoy egg uh, businesses, uh, I want to have things that are not dependent um, upon government policy or upon weather because those are two things I cannot control. Let's talk about you being on the uh, National Sorghum Board of Directors a little bit. I just wanted to know what types of steps did it take for you to get on a board like this? Um, Well, I was really – I got to know the people and very committed to the growth in sorghum uh, because I think it is a very good crop for places where water is restricted. Um. We use it in our ethanol plants, and you can raise it on probably 10 inches less moisture than 8 to 10 inches less moisture than what corn takes. Um, so I kind of got involved in trying to grow acres for the, um, not uh, grow in terms of expand the acres that our ethanol plants uh, had access to. And in the process of that, then I started to raise it. Um, got to know a few people on the board, and they invited me to uh, participate from an ethanol perspective because uh, Conestoga is the largest domestic consumer of of, uh, sorghum in the United States. And um, so I think that's how I got started there with with that. Just we're very committed to trying to grow some acres. Where do you uh, see sorghum prices going in the future? Well, again, if China comes in, uh, higher, because China likes it. They've got a good appetite for it. Um, the water doesn't always get to, at the end of the row, but they're willing to pay, uh, uh, you know, load it on a boat down out of Houston or NOLA um, versus what the farmer sees. There's often a disproportionate spread. That's something that we're trying to work on. Uh, this ethanol 
companies showing a little bit better bid out there for it. But I'm uh, you bring China back in, I'm very friendly uh, sorghum prices. Sorghum basis it prices off of the corn board, but I'm I am bullish uh, sorghum basis uh, once you get uh, some of the uh, export picture back in. What worries you the most on the downside? Like if prices were to fall, what what do you look? Uh, if they get too cheap, because that does trade at a discount to corn, uh, people won't raise it. Okay. And uh, you know it's uh, three hundred and fifty, hundred no three hundred fifty million, four hundred million a year crop in the United States. So it's not a huge one, but it's a it's an important one. Um, but if you have too much volatility in terms of being able to find the right market for it, the grain companies that buy it will, will discount that risk. They'll put that risk in the price. And obviously, if it gets down below the cost of production, people won't raise it. Or they put it on marginal ground so you don't get the full potential out of it. I think that's the biggest risk on the downside. I was interested a little bit in what you thought. We, I talked to farmers who got sorghum, but... As you know, we don't deal a whole lot with sorghum uh, in our office. It's a, We're mainly corn, beans, it's wheat. It's a great fit out here, mm-hmm. but it's a great fit if you can get it within, you know, 96, 97, maybe 95% value of corn. Um, in some cases, when China pulled out of the market, it cut down to where it was like 90% value of corn. And at that price, uh, it, especially given where corn prices are, it's you lose those incremental marginal acres. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk anyway. a little bit about you, but before that, I know you're on the Koch Foundation's Youth Entrepreneur Board. Can oh, you Coke? tell me, is that what it's called, the Coke or the Coke? Yeah, like the Coke Brothers. Okay, Coke. All right. Uh, can you tell me what your motivation was to be on a board like this and maybe one piece of advice you feel is most uh, I important? like helping and giving back to the two young people. And the young entrepreneurs, youth entrepreneurs, is a class. It's a program where they teach entrepreneurship in high school. Uh, they teach that life owes you nothing but an opportunity, and that you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to work hard. Um, they teach some of the basic business uh, principles: how to read a balance sheet, how to put together pro forma, how to read an income statement. Those are all great tools that anybody should know going forward. Uh, number two, having a steady labor pool out in western Kansas has always been challenging. And uh, being able to teach and have that taught to, to people to help raise the uh, level of, uh, of uh, the quality of the employees that my company, for one, or any of the companies out here, um, would be a good thing to raise that. I think this program does it. Uh, it targets disadvantaged youth. So you take somebody that maybe... Uh, under the right set of circumstances, would actually be on the you know, the government dole, and they're actually becoming a uh, instead become a profitable uh, part of society where they where they're employed, they pay taxes, they contribute, um, helps everybody, and uh, I think it's a it's a great program. Um, starts at the right age, and so yeah, I, I like being involved with it. What would you say like the best piece of advice is for someone like myself? as an up-and-coming entrepreneur? As you get successful, and this is, Jordan, I would say it very passionately, don't forget to give back. It's very easy when we become successful to forget to give back to the community, give back 
mentor, mentor a youth the way you were mentored by your father. I know your father very well, and uh, you've got a great role model there. Not everybody has the same role model you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, your dad hangs out with some very successful people that you get the opportunity to hang out with. Not everybody has that opportunity. So as you get successful, give back. Give back um, by being that role model, that example to somebody that doesn't have that in their life because it makes a difference. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, A trend I've seen so far on these podcasts, I don't know if you've listened to many of them or not, but Chris Rivera was on here, and he's very big into giving back. Uh, You know Braden Hootie. He was on here talking a lot about charity, so seems like something a lot yeah. of successful people have in common. It, uh, it's the next, it's the best thing you can do for the next generation, and, and it helps yourself too. Because you know, again, uh, as long as you're in business, you're going to need qualified people. But uh, I, I very, very much enjoy watching somebody succeed, and know that in some small way, I might have played a role in helping them be successful. I had people help me be successful. I had people take a chance on me, and uh, I want to do the same for those people underneath me, or not underneath me, but that next generation that's coming, that's out there. I guess it'll be a couple of generations removed. I forget how old I am. <laughs> but my advice for you is you become more and more successful, don't forget to give back. And there's several ways you can do it. Pick the one that brings you the most satisfaction, but give back to society. Give back to the youth. Be an example. I think that's, that's good luck for everybody. advice I could give you. Thanks. Let's uh, step away from talking about your work life a little bit, though. Um, in my podcast, I like to step back from people's work and learn a little bit more about them. I know your son, Josh, was in the military. One year, you were at my dad's show, and you touched on how freedom isn't exactly free. You also talked a little bit about how we sacrificed a lot of lives to keep the price of oil low. Can you tell the story to our listeners and expand a little bit on what I just said? Well, uh, I was at that time, your dad asked me to talk a little bit about the importance of, uh, of why I was in the ethanol business. And, um, you know, one of the comments that, uh, that used to be made now with the, some of the uh, explorations in the Permian Basin and the Balkan have changed that a little bit over the years, but at that time, uh, we imported a lot of oil from countries that didn't like us. So we were sending our dollars over to countries that would use those dollars to promote terrorism. Um, We would have to go over and fight the terrorism. And if you've ever had, at that time, I had a son that was on a deployment that was blown up uh, several times. Uh, they actually caught one of them on a couple of them on, t- on uh, videotape. The uh, Al Qaeda actually videotaped him being blown up. So that happens two or three times. You get very passionate about wanting to make our country be as energy independent as we can, so that those dollars aren't flowing into into countries that sponsor terrorism. And uh, I, I feel very passionate about it then. I feel very passionate about it today. So we, we in the United States, between our oil reserves and the ability to create renewable uh, fuels like ethanol or biodiesel, you know, we can put ourselves in a position where we don't have to send one dadgum dollar over to some of those people that would use it to, uh, to bring us harm. 
And if you've had a son or daughter in harm's way, you understand the real price that freedom that freedom is. Uh, my son lost men, and uh, he was only a boy himself when he was over there. You're talking 20, 21, 22, 22-year-old boys, uh, you know, that their lives are being sacrificed or were being sacrificed um, for at the very, very end to, uh, to subsidize to make sure that... Uh, uh, foreign crude could get into the United States at, at cheap ice. They talked about ethanol being subsidized, and I would I will suggest to you that for several years the U.S. taxpayers subsidized the uh, oil by protecting the shipping the shipping lanes and uh, the countries like Kuwait when it was invaded to make sure that the U.S. had a cheap the cheapest possible oil policy energy policy. So, yeah, I'm very grateful to have people like Josh in my life and I always keep in perspective I could be uh over fighting in the military right now or something like that I'm extremely grateful like I said to be in the position I am and well done for a service it's, yeah it's uh just he's just one of several there's mm-hmm. several thousand young men and young women that uh that volunteer uh to go out and protect our way of life uh, every day so you're, I know you're hugely involved in politics. Let's uh, jump over to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. You told me you were recently at a Mike Pence event last week. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah. Uh, can you just share with us your thoughts and perspectives with politics on what's going on right now? You can maybe even touch a little bit on midterm elections. Well, uh, there is a ton going on. Um, I think it's very interesting because there's probably never been a more polarizing person as president than we have with President Trump. You know, people either really like him or they don't like him. And depending on the uh, the perspective you have on him, because you're gives you a perspective of whether you think he's doing a great job or, or, or a bad job, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, this election this year, midterm election, at least part of it will be a referendum on, on how people think, uh, how they think he's doing. You know? So it'll be It'll be an interesting one. Usually, mid mid or uh, midterm elections like this are not. You don't have a lot of voters to turn out. I think that would be a different case this year. I think there'd be a lot of people voting on both sides. But I think the passions run. You know, those that hate him, uh, really hate him. But you've got a lot that, that love him, that really love him. And uh, uh, I think it'll be very interesting to watch it uh, watch it pan out. We're seeing that same thing on our side. We're like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but it's going to be an interesting one. What, what, tell me some of the like most influential, most influential politicians you've met so far. Uh, well, President Trump would be one. Uh, obviously, Vice President Pence. Um, I would I would say that uh, if you want to bring things closer to home that uh, Congressman Kevin Yoder from the 3rd District, 1st uh, District Marshal, uh, Lynn Jenkins from the, uh, from the 2nd District, and, and uh, Estes, Ron Estes from the 4th District, uh, you know, they do represent Kansas pretty well. Uh, from a broader scope, uh, from an influential perspective, Joni Ernst from Iowa and Chuck Grassley, when it comes to agriculture, um, they are two hugely influential, as well as Pat Roberts mm-hmm. uh, is. Uh, Jerry Moran, 
is also very well thought of back up on the back up on the hill uh, in in those terms. Tell so, me, uh, have you ever gotten a piece of advice from these guys that you think's worth sharing from one of them? You know, I'd have to think about that, partner. I. Or maybe you could tell us one of the best events you've been to, political events. The best event that I was to um, was probably the inauguration. That is the most recent cool. with Trump. That with Trump, which uh, went to one with Trump, yes, when he was in. Uh, you see democracy at work. You know, despite all of our differences as a country. We have an exchange of power that goes very smoothly. There's no coups. Uh, there's no attempted coups. Uh, so for all the things that are wrong, um, being at the inauguration, it just rectifies what a great system we live in where you can have a transfer of power. And let's face it, you had a lot of people didn't like him, but that power still transferred. And it did it, did it relatively peacefully. So, yeah, that's something I, I think, I've always wanted to go out to, and I definitely need to go out at some point. You know, congressional uh, galas that I've gone to that have been, uh, you know, worth going to. Uh, meet oh, the, the ag party at the inauguration that, that's sponsored uh, by the by the ag, different states. Ags is always fun. That's worth going to as well. So that's something me and my dad need to get out to one year. Yes, you do. You, you, you do. But the inauguration, whether you like the guy or don't, whoever it is, is worth going to just to watch the transfer of power. Mm-hmm. Because people don't realize, they take that for granted, but think in, the, think in the news how many times somebody gets elected president and there's a coup or there's a demo. You know what I'm saying? Just yeah. think about that in the world today, and that never happens here. So, the last thing I wanted to talk about you is you, I know you play a pretty significant role in the church. Can you expand a little bit um, on that to our listeners and tell us what exactly you do for the people in the church? Well, uh, I'm a member of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, we have a lay ministry, which means we don't get paid to serve. And I served as a congregational leader for 14 years. Um, great experience and able to help people, counsel with people, uh, you know, help people find jobs, uh, get their life right. Um, so I probably learned more from it than uh, than I taught, but uh, very unique uh, uh, opportunity, and feel very very fortunate to have had that uh, that time in my life. I don't I no longer do that, uh, um, but uh, it was a it was a great great experience, great experience, a chance to to help people, and again that's that giving back part of it. So and do it in a religious context. Yeah, I, I I think you're a really good role model for people, and I think you do a lot of good things in the community. Let's uh, let's jump into what you're doing now at Conestoga Energy, though. Like I uh, talked about in your intro, you took over as a CEO. You took the company yeah. from three to 220 employees, and 1.5 billion in sales is what I read online. We're we're headed for two. Uh, we bought some uh, biodiesel trading company. Uh, we've added a, uh, a feed mill. Uh, we make a 100% uh, dry distorter screen feed cube for the livestock industry. Um, 
it's, it's been fun. We've got often, uh, offices in Baltimore. We have one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, one in Dallas, and then we have terminals uh, where we can transload uh, scattered, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Nebraska, uh, New Mexico, Texas, uh, putting one in Kansas. So uh, one in South Dakota. Um, so it's been fun. It's been fun to to watch, to watch the company grow. And yeah, it sounds like it was a failing business when you came in, and you completely turned it around. Uh, could you tell? Well, it wasn't the, really failing. They just had they had a great idea. There, there was just some. Um, they, they they ran into some obstacles. They they unfortunately had a couple of shysters they they were doing business with that uh, complicated it. Um, so I don't know if it was failing. It just it just needed uh, team effort. Uh, I will tell you that it was a team effort with everybody involved, and and uh, we uh, we overcame that and a few other obstacles to uh, to be where we are today. So it's been a, it's been an amazing twelve years. Wouldn't yeah, my dad was telling me anything. a little bit about some of the creative things you did on the business side and infrastructure side of things to turn the business around a little bit and grow it as big as it is today. Could you uh, share some of those with us? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think what I would have told him. Uh, we are we are low-carbon, uh, producer of low-carbon ethanol, which gives us a competitive advantage. Uh, you get that way by um, uh, it's a combination of how we produce ethanol, how our farmers farm, uh, and how we market it. Uh, we sequester our CO2, so all the CO2 that comes off when you ferment a uh, bushel of corn, you get a uh, out of 56 pounds, a third of it is ethanol, a third of it is distillers, and a third of it is CO2. We actually capture that CO2 and use it for enhanced oil recovery, which means we pump it down in the ground and it's used to force oil back up. But in addition to that, we sequester the CO2 in the ground to keep it out of the environment, which makes our ethanol uh, much more uh, environmentally friendly. So we were the first ones in the country to do that, um, in the industry to do that. And it's uh, we've, we've been doing it since uh, 2010, I guess, for eight years now. So we do it at both our Kansas plants. So that's been one thing that we've done, but we are always trying to find ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint. Um, we put a focus on sustainability, going back to our producers, you know, uh, trying to encourage uh, farming techniques that uh, that will be sustainable for a long time, so that our business will be here for a long time. So, uh, tell me this: are, Where do you see a couple of the things? Yeah, where do you see the ethanol space going in three to five years? Well, that depends on a whole bunch of things: what the government ends up doing or doesn't do. Uh, our our industry has a problem with overproduction. If we can't find any new export homes for it, and China and India would provide two big homes, but we're not in those marketplaces yet, I think you'll see a retraction in our in our business. If those uh, end of, if those two countries uh, come on board, we're able to get the trade things worked out. Uh, you'll probably see the business uh, grow to where it's a uh, seventeen, you know, uh, billion gallon a year year business, consuming uh, you know five and a half. Getting bushels of corn. Yeah, bigger concerns. Uh, me and my dad always talk about is I wanted to hear from you on is where do you see ethanol 
more longer term, maybe 10 years plus, we're hearing debates about electric vehicles, adoption rates. Uh, how do you see all this playing out moving forward? Well, I'm not, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens with EV. They might have a role in suburbia America. I I would be real curious to see what that looks like to other places. I know, you know, it's certainly from a liquid fuels perspective, it is something to keep an eye on. Um, and maybe they'll be adopted uh, hand over fist. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that myself. I don't think your dad is. I think your dad's pretty much convinced that's that's the the, the route. But I I don't know. I haven't convinced myself of it yet. But technology changes, advances. Maybe they're able to do some things that that uh, make it uh, towards the norm. But why don't you yeah. think it'll go that way? What's your stance behind it? Without a huge advancement in technology, just the amount of of battery life that you have to go from point A to point B. You know, I live in Kansas. It's 20 miles, 30 miles to go get a loaf of bread. It's 40 miles to one of my farms. When you live in the city and you don't drive very far, you know, if uh, if 500 miles a month is a norm, there might be some adaptation there. Uh, when you put on, uh, you know, a um, thousand miles a week, uh, that's a lot of miles. I, I, I just don't know the tech, the, that the technology is there for the flyover states. And then, you know, what are you going to power it with? Natural gas, coal. Natural gas is great. Then you see rates go up, um, costs go up, and now all of a sudden, liquid fuel says, "Well, we've got a bunch of it, so we better price ourselves to where people will." We'll use it. So now you get into uh, uh, the markets get into a war, right? Gasoline wants to be used. You've got the refining capacity out there. So how low does it go to buy able to be able to buy back market share? And then you come back to what government policy is going to be. You know, under the current administration, they want to do things to kind of loosen the cafe standards. It, you know, so a lot of it's going to be driven by by who's in who is in power and how those things go. So, yeah, it's a lot of good insight. What about uh, DDGs? Uh, what do you see happening on that side of things? Oh, on distil- dry distillation, right? Yeah. Well, we've uh, we've we've got a method that we put we make them into pellets, and it's a high fat, high protein, 100% natural uh, cube that uh, cattle just go bonkers over. Uh, in terms of the you know exports, obviously uh, they traded a discount to, uh, to soybean meal and. And um, doesn't have quite the amino acids that soy milk has, but um, I, th- I think the world uh, continues to need protein. It's long starch, short protein. So uh, again, depending on government policy, government trade policy, trade wars, all the different things that can impact it. I'm, I guess I would have to be friendly long term, uh, the export of protein, just because the world in general is long starch in diets, but it's short protein. Yeah, that's some uh, good information there. Before I wrap things up, though, I had uh, one last question for you. I would love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Tom Willis. Um, I think the single biggest thing that I've learned in life 
or that's had the biggest impact on me is never give up on a dream. That if you're willing to work smart and willing to work hard, there's never been more opportunity out there than there is today. You have to be willing to take some risk. You have to live with that risk. You have to live with the idea that you can fail. But as I mentioned earlier, you only fail when you give up. And I think that's the biggest thing that life has, has taught me because I've I've done things that have not worked. Um, is that you know all that means is that is, you know you're, you're a pitcher or a basketball player. Yeah, that one didn't go in. I'm going to shoot the next one because the next one's going to go in. So never give up. Never, never give up. And then if you once you've been a little bit successful, give back. Give back. To, we have so many people that don't want to do that, and the next generation so badly needs it. So those are the two life lessons I've learned. Work hard, work smart. Uh, don't let failure uh, or, or uh, defeat uh, keep you from uh, going forward because success is just, a, you know, that 40-point game is just the, the next shot away. And uh, when you are successful, um, take the time, make the time to get back to the next generation. I think that's some really good advice, Tom, and something I'm going to take to heart moving forward. I think that's going to conclude our Farm Tank session today. Remember to follow Farm Tank on Facebook. You can also follow Farm Tank on Instagram and Twitter at Farm Tank. Remember to subscribe at farmtank.com for exclusive content. I'm going to be sending out a lot of stuff tomorrow about some purchases I've made that I really like and just some things to be looking out for in the future. I think that's all I have, and until next time, thanks.